Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this Physicians Weekly special edition podcast about what you probably didn't know about actionable biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer, or NSCLC. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles, from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. The Physicians Weekly podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. The evolution of biomarkers informing therapy decisions began in 2004 when the FDA approved medicine to treat EGFR mutated non small cell lung cancer, or NSCLC. Since then, researchers have identified over 20 distinct mutations in driver genes that are specific to lung cancer nine of which are treatable through FDA-approved therapy drugs. And that includes the EGFR receptor, the epidermal growth factor receptor, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, or ALK, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, the V600E mutation, NTRK, MET, RET, and histological expression of programmed death ligand 1, or PDL1. We know that confirming a patient's biomarker status can open the door to precision medicine. The molecular characterization of lung cancer has considerably changed the classification and treatment of these tumors and has become an essential component of pathologic diagnosis and oncologic therapy decisions. And the success of targeted anti-cancer therapies and new immunotherapy approaches has created a new paradigm of personalized therapy, and it's also led to an accelerated development of new drugs for lung cancer treatments. Additional research is needed to identify and treat the approximately one-third of lung cancer patients for which biomarkers have not yet been identified. This podcast focuses on clinically relevant cancer biomarkers as targets for therapy, as well as potential new targets for drug development. We speak in our first episode with Professor David M. Waterhouse, who just moved to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard Medical School, Massachusetts this month. And until last month, he was the former director of clinical research at Oncology Hematology Care in Cincinnati, Ohio. We also speak about how these biomarkers are used in academic versus community hospitals. In our second episode, we will talk with Associate Professor Sanchita Roy Chowdhury, a molecular pathologist from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, about what you didn't know about actionable biomarkers for NSCLC. Enjoy listening. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here today. So yeah, about biomarkers, and, and in particular in lung cancer, they are really driving the treatments as being made. Can you speak generally about what biomarkers are from your perspective and how we're utilizing them? Biomarkers is sort of a general term for testing that you can do on the tumor specimen or on circulating DNA in the blood. And what it does is it it provides you a hint into best practices relative to treatment. Also can give you even some prognostic information. We divide the biomarkers generally into actionable and not actionable. Actionable means that there is an FDA-approved treatment based upon that biomarker. Currently, there are nine actionable biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer. Seven of those are actionable in the first line of treatment. Two of them are for those patients who have failed uh, frontline therapy. As you and I mentioned in the pre-talk, they, they have been around for a while. But really, the, the discovery of these biomarkers really has transformed how we manage the disease. We estimate that about 40% of the patients will have an actionable biomarker. The number, when you read it in different papers, will range anywhere from 30 to 60%, though. 
because we're still learning exactly the best methodologies for testing uh, these biomarkers. And now the biomarkers are not just random. They, they were discovered as part of an understanding of the cancer biology. And then through scientific discovery, broke down those kinds of findings that could be targeted to interfere with the malignant process. So, so biomarkers have been around for a bit. First actionable biomarkers. I mean, we've known about KRAS, for example, for, you know, 40 years, but it wasn't actionable till this year, actually, when uh, the first drug got FDA approval for targeting uh, one of the biomarkers called KRAS G12C, for example. The biggest problems have been that uh, not everybody understands them, not everybody uses them, not everybody, even when they get the test, uses the test appropriately. So there's an education gap, but doctors are quickly closing that gap. That's fantastic. So what are some of the unmet needs with regard to doctors and their understanding this, this new technology? I think that there's a number of unmet needs. When we first started looking into this, it was just presumed that if there was a test that could predict whether or not a, a patient would respond to a certain treatment, doctors would order that test. But when we first looked at this issue, we found uh, surprisingly in a very small pilot study that over half of the doctors weren't testing for the actionable biomarkers that were out there today. Now that was a very small pilot study and it was challenged a bit. So we expanded that study into what was to later become my lung, uh, where over 3,700 charts were manually curated to see what testing was done and we came up with the same findings, that less than half of the patients had comprehensive testing. Now, many more had what we call hotspot testing, test one or two of the biomarkers, maybe three, but not all of the actionable biomarkers. Now, those numbers are improving. Can you take a deeper dive at some point into what the actionable biomarkers are? What are the most commonly ordered and most commonly identified? <laughs> For that matter, there's probably a discrepancy in those two. As I said, there are nine actionable biomarkers, and the first ones that were discovered, as I mentioned before, there are many more that are in development. We know that there are multiple mutations in cancers that are not seen in normal cells. We think that some of those are leading to the malignant behavior of the cells. Those are the ones that we think could potentially be such a biomarker. Now, as time has moved on and science has moved forward, and I'm not a basic scientist, I'm a clinical scientist, they have developed drugs that, that target these. So the first ones that people remember as actionable would be the earlier ones, EGFR, ALK, and ROS. And there were testing done for those biomarkers. But not long thereafter, other biomarkers were added. And as I said, now there are nine of them. In addition to the ones where we're using targeted drugs, we also have markers that we're using to help direct decision-making relative to immunotherapy. So you have PDL one and tumor mutation burden, for example. The field is moving quickly, and so what is actionable today may be different tomorrow. There are some that are you know coming just around the corner. Her two new, BRAF, are examples. People are even beginning to start treating those now. So you asked what the gap is. It is a rapidly evolving and changing world. You know, if you think of the other tumor types, as you mentioned before, that we think of this way, you think, for example, with breast cancer. 
Now, no one would ever think that a patient with breast cancer wouldn't have estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 testing on their tumor. It's done reflexively at the level of the pathologist. Everybody gets that information right away. But with lung cancer, you have to request it. You sometimes have to fight to get the testing done. The turnaround time for the testing sometimes is, or at least feels, excessive. And those are challenges. So the first challenge is to get the doctor to order it and order the correct or most comprehensive of the testing. NCCN and other guideline promoters such as ASCO, ESMO, recommend that all patients with non-small cell lung cancer have NGS testing. That is a more comprehensive testing and a higher quality testing. They recommend that it's done prior to initiation of first-line therapy. And it's recommended that the results from that be used to treat the patient. So you got to get people to test. You have to get them to wait for the results of the test before making their treatment decision. They then have to use the test to make the correct decision. So it is challenging. Right. What is there on the side of the patient information that needs to be strengthened? I'm sure that this is a very confusing field for the majority of patients. Oh, absolutely. So I think that uh, one of the challenges is the urge to start treatment right away. That urge is generated at the patient level. My God, I've got cancer. I need to begin treatment. At the family level and people who love them. My God, this person has cancer. We need to get treatment started right away. It happens at the physician level. You want to help them right away, or you want to make sure that they're not going to leave your institution, go somewhere else. You know, there's some less than quality reasons why people do it, but they feel the need to get started. So the first thing is you have to educate them on this testing is important. And unless there is an absolute urgent need, which is very rare, you need to just sit back and wait for those results. Now, you're not sitting quietly and waiting. There's other work that has to be done before a patient begins treatment for lung cancer, imaging, they may need to get a port and other things, but at least wait for the results. Also, we can tell them that the thought leaders in the industry believe that having this testing does inform the decision-making and those patients who are treated using this technology and using these results, the outcomes for the patients generally are better. That's how the drugs got their FDA approval. They would have been compared to standard of care and had to have proven better efficacy endpoints. You know, it may even be better and less toxic. And that's exactly the combination you want to see. Yeah, absolutely. So, and what about, are are the discrepancies that you experience between academic or comprehensive cancer centers and, say, community hospitals in the utilization of this technology? Oh, it's very interesting. I've spent most of my career in the community. Only literally in the last month have I changed to an academic center. So I spent most of my time in the community. There is the impression that testing is less comprehensive in the community versus the academic centers. That may or may not be true. I think that oftentimes it's more of a you know resource-rich versus resource-poor environment. So some of the comprehensive centers, for example, have their labs in their own facilities and can do the testing. They have grants that permit a testing without worrying about the financial toxicity that may be imposed on a patient. So there is a little bit of an advantage. Sometimes at the academic centers, you are going to see someone who only sees lung cancer. 
And so I think that the testing rates probably are a shade higher in the academic centers, but they still suffer the same problems that the community does. I don't think that this is an us and them kind of environment. But what are the bottlenecks to full implementation? So full implementation, there are multiple bottlenecks. Uh, as I mentioned, the first is just awareness. The doc has to order it. But the fact that the doc has to order it is even a problem. Many times, for example, with breast cancer, there is reflex testing. If you are diagnosed with breast cancer, that pathologist will immediately move on to reflexively test for estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. We don't have reflex testing generally in lung cancer. There are a few progressive facilities that are starting to do that, and, and kudos to them. But right now, that doesn't exist. There are financial barriers, and it will take governmental interference to help break down some of those. So whether or not the testing can be paid for on an inpatient, for example, versus an outpatient. The testing is expensive. It, the prices are coming down, but you know, as, as it's becoming more widespread, but it is of value. There have been multiple studies that have shown that it is cost efficient and cost effective. Right now, most of the testing is recommended to be done first on tissue. And so there are problems with tissue acquisition, having enough tissue to do the testing. So how you obtain a biopsy informs whether or not you can get this testing done. For example, if a person has a brain metastasis that was resected, you have a lot of tissue and, and tissue will not be a problem. But if the diagnosis was made by an endobronchial ultrasound, there may be only a limited amount of tissue and that tissue may have been exhausted in making the diagnosis and there isn't enough left over to do the testing. Now there is what they call a liquid biopsy where you can send plasma and have that test for circulating DNA, circulating mRNA. But that's still not quite prime time yet. That technology is improving rapidly and I don't think it'll be very long before we'll have that ability. But right now it's sort of a default testing when you can't get it any other way. So that's another one of the barriers that we see. There is no structured fields for this in the electronic medical records as they exist. Now, again, there are groups such as U.S. Oncology with G2 who are trying to change that, but the results will come in to your record not as data that can be searched, so-called structured data, but rather as, say, a PDF or a report. And so you have to know where to look for that in your electronic medical record, and different institutions may store it under pathology, under results, under outside results, or different places. Uh, doctors have to be trained on how to read the reports. They can be confusing. And so, you know, we have to get them in that mind frame, how to do it and know where it's coming in. They need to know where that information is archived so that if a patient fails their first line of treatment, they may be able to go back and look at it. Or even better yet, import those results in some fashion into their electronic medical record in a way that carries forward just as you would put down the type of lung cancer, you might put the biomarker reports as part of the description of the patient's cancer that carries forward with each note. Um, so I think there are best practices that can be shared. And I think that the medical community is really doing a very good job of doing that. As I said, I think that the, the, the field is, is rapidly evolving and docs are doing a pretty good job of keeping up but it is challenging and it will be more challenging as more and more tumor types, you know, jump on this same bandwagon. For sure. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. 
That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 